this morning. But we are continuing on in a sermon series that we have titled, uh, or that I have titled, Grounded and Growing, uh, as Peter calls us uh, to be grounded and growing in the grace and the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a day and an age where we long for, look for, and love instant gratification. I remember when I was, I think it was around middle school or high school, when uh, the infomercials started coming out about the the new wave oven. Do y'all remember the new wave oven? Yeah, and what was the catchphrase for the new wave oven? Isn't that the one that was set it and forget it? Is that the new wave oven? It was one of those kitchen gadgets that it was the whole big thing was you were able to just put it in, plug it in, set it, forget it, and go about your life, and your, your dinner would be cooked to perfection. And now they've got all of these new machines where you could put the fries on this level and the chicken nuggets on this level and the french fries or the, the green beans on this level, and it'll just cook them perfectly, and it requires no effort on your own really whatsoever. Take it out of the oven, throw it in, and it is just fine. And the truth of the matter is, there are many of us, and we have grown up often easily in a church culture that wants to treat our Christianity in that same reality or that same approach. That Christianity is a set it and forget it religion. That we have been given, as we learned last week, everything that we need in Jesus Christ. That he has accomplished everything necessary for our life and godliness, and his power has granted us those things we saw last week. And so my Christian life is this experience in which Jesus infuses me with everything that is necessary, and I am good from this point forward. That I can now just kind of coast through life in this grace with no real obligations or responsibilities. That I have this infusion of grace, and so my life is okay. We talked about responses to Christianity that both Paul and Peter want to help us navigate. On the one hand, what, Peter, uh, or what Paul addresses in the book of Galatians we said last week is the Christian tendency to move towards legalism, to turn Christianity into a system of rules that we are to keep and that we are to constantly um, guard ourselves in, and if we keep those rules, then we keep ourselves okay with God. And Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians as he talks about grace and the adoption that we have in Jesus Christ. The other side of the pendulum, we said, is the tendency to say, well, if God has given me the grace that Paul talks about and such that I have everything that I need in him and his grace is greater than all of my sins, then I can just do whatever I want. And that's a life of license or licentiousness. And that is what Peter is writing against in this letter. But maybe you and I aren't necessarily at that place where we've swung so far to say, well, listen, I can indulge my sin without any consequences. But there are many of us that may be living our lives as though, and our Christian lives, as though it requires no effort of our own. That now, because Jesus has done everything, I can, as I said earlier, coast through life on his grace But Peter is not going to let us sit back on our laurels. He's not going to let us just live listlessly floating through life. Instead, he calls every believer to not only be grounded in the grace that we discussed last week, but also to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. And so in the verses that we are going to study this morning, Peter urges us to cultivate our character 
and to confirm our Christian calling. Look with me, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 5. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things at any time. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. For the guarantee in your word that you will finish what you start. That, Heavenly Father, you have called us by your beauty and by your excellence that you have given to us all that we need for life and for godliness. That, Heavenly Father, your grace and peace is available to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord God, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to the ways, Heavenly Father, that we are prone to laziness in our Christianity. That, Heavenly Father, we might instead rededicate ourselves. Here at the beginning of this year, Heavenly Father, may we renew our commitment to grow. As we know, Heavenly Father, and learn this morning that our faith, powerful enough to save, is something, Heavenly Father, that we must pay attention to, that we must cultivate, and in that, Heavenly Father, we will see growth in grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're picking up with Peter's thought right smack dab in the middle of what is really kind of a, a sermonette, if you will. A little, a, a little message that he is giving that really begins back in verse 3 in which we studied last week that Peter lays the foundation that we need to know that God has given us everything that he, we need to be obedient to and fulfill any expectation that he has, us, has of us. He has equipped us with all that we need for life and godliness. He has called us by his grace and by his glory and by his excellence. He's granted to, to us his very precious and great promises. He has made us partakers of his divine nature. He has 
given us new birth so that we receive this new, this new nature. He has, by his power, rescued us that we have escaped from our old corrupt selves and the desires that would control us. Therefore, Peter says, for this reason, because God has given all of this to you, because you stand on this foundation of the work of God and the grace of God and the, the ministry and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you stand on that, since you've received those things, we must now make every effort to supplement our faith. We are to cultivate our character. We're to confirm our Christian calling. At the beginning, in these verses, he tells us that we are to supplement our faith with a list of qualities. In this, we, are, we learn that he is encouraging us to cultivate our character. Peter issues a command. In verse 5, it's actually a command that we supplement our faith with virtue. Maybe your translation says you're to add to your faith, or you're to even supply your faith, to your faith these additional things. If we're not careful, when we hear that language of adding to our faith, we'll interpret Peter's words to imply that faith is not enough. That we need something in addition to our faith. Or maybe what we'll do is that we'll read this as a list of ascending qualities that as I add each one on top of each other, I become a better Christian. I become a more qualified Christian. That faith if we were in a dojo, faith would be a white belt baby Christian. But when I get all the way up to love, now I'm a black belt Christianity. Because I've added all of these things. And we will turn Christianity into this system with a pecking order in front of God. But as we saw last week, God's grace doesn't work that way. But God in his grace has actually given us a faith that is of equal standing even with the apostles, capital A apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw his miracles, and were personally commissioned by him to be the founders of his church. And we are given a faith of equal standing to them. So Peter's list of qualities here can't be some type of ascending skill set that makes us better Christians. So if we're not to see these qualities as skills that we have to master, how then should we interpret what Peter is telling us? Peter, calling on and thinking back to the ministry of his Lord, Jesus Christ, picks up, I believe, an agricultural reference in this passage of Scripture. In verse 8, he's going to tell us that if we have these qualities and they're increasing, they keep us from being unfruitful. There's a picture there of a fruitful tree that bears fruit. Jesus said in warning against false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you will recognize false prophets by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In their agricultural day, they understood what it was to give time and effort and energy and intentionality to cultivate a crop. They couldn't just plant seeds and set it and forget it. 
They had to care for and provide, supplement those seeds that were planted in the ground with the nutrients necessary for them to then grow. As I was thinking through and studying this passage of Scripture, the idea of an acorn came to my mind. And if you think about an acorn, in this acorn, not this one because it's ceramic and not real, but in every acorn is everything that is necessary for a giant oak tree to come into existence. Everything needed is packed into a tiny little seed. From the very beginning, we don't have to come and add on to or attach to this seed anything else. The potential for a giant oak tree exists in that tiny little seed. But that tiny little seed, if left by itself on a shelf, will never actually sprout or fruit or grow, let alone bear fruit. Instead, we have to take that seed and put it into the ground and provide it with the nutrients necessary for that particular seed in order for it to grow. That is very much what Peter, I think, has in mind here, is that we, like acorns, are infants, babies, even babies. Everything needed for that infant to grow into a full-grown human being biologically is there embedded in that person's DNA. We don't have to come in and attach things to them that they might grow. Instead, it is there. But before they can become that adult, before an acorn can become an oak tree, it must grow. And in order to grow, it needs those nutrients. And so Peter says here that we must supplement, provide nutrients to our faith that allow us then to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter gives us a sampling of some nutrients that we can supplement our faith with. This is not intended to be an all-encompassing list that makes everything right. Nor do I believe that it is intended to be a stair step that we walk. And we're not to work solely on supplementing virtue and then from virtue then add knowledge and then add self-control. Instead, we're to be working on all of these things at all the time. But it is important that he begins in faith and he ends in love. So what are these nutrients that Paul, Peter says that we need? We need to supplement our faith with virtue, with goodness, with excellence. If you take notes in your Bible, one of the things that you might do is you might circle this word that he says that we are to supplement our faith with virtue and point back to verse 3. Because it's the exact same word that Peter uses there when he says that through the knowledge of him, he has called us by his own glory and excellence. It's the exact same word there for God's excellence, for God's virtue. And it is a word that talks about a moral excellence. We are to follow freely the example of Jesus Christ, whose life was sinless, was characterized by by virtue, a moral excellence. And it was through Christ's life that he was both salt and light to the world around him. By his behaviors and his actions that were morally excellent, Jesus reflected the character of God into the world through his actions. And you and I are to reflect God's moral purity by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes. We are to live lives of moral excellence within the church, 
and out in front of the world. To virtue, we are to add knowledge. Knowledge is an important word in Peter's letter, but it is different, slightly different, than the knowledges that appear in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 5. I told you last week that there, Peter is specifically referencing to a personal relational knowledge. When I, there is a difference in the way I might know about the President of the United States. I have an idea of who he is. It's an entirely different type of knowledge when I talk about knowing my wife. There's a relationship that's there that exists. And so Peter, when he's using that word elsewhere, is talking about our intimacy with God, that saving relationship that we have. Here, Peter makes just a slightly different change to the word when he talks about adding to our virtue knowledge. And I think he does that intentionally, though we don't have to make a huge deal about it. What I believe that Peter is wanting us to see is that we are to add to that relational component of God a growing understanding of God, a growing understanding of His desires and His character and His nature. We are to pursue wisdom. It's a deeper understanding of the objective realities of Christianity and about God. And we are, so we are to add to our moral excellence a knowledge and an understanding of God. To our knowledge, we are to add self-control. It's the same word that we find in Paul's list of other qualities that we are to experience and to display as Christians, the, spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. We are to experience self-control. Here, Peter wants us to be those types of people whose desires are under control. We're not people ruled by our emotions. We are not people prone to reacting, but we are people who are able to respond. There is a significant difference between reacting and responding. And we are to be people who have our desires, what we have been freed from, according to verse 4, right? That we have been escaped from the corruption of the world that is there because of our sinful desires. We're no longer ruled by them. But instead, those desires are under control as we submit ourselves. Peter is specifically talking here. He's not specifically, but one of the things that he is setting us up for is the control of our sexual desires. Because he's going to take the, to task the false teachers who are telling and teaching the people that they do not have to control their sexual desires, but can be ruled by them. And so Peter wants us to be self-controlled. He wants us to daily put to death our fleshly selves that we might grow in godliness. Self-control is an internal battle and war that takes place within every believer. But endurance or steadfastness, which is the next quality that he talks about, talks not about the internal struggle, but the external struggle. This word isn't merely to invoke us to some kind of endurance like an athlete who punishes or who trains his body that he might endure the race. But Peter here is specifically talking about the type of endurance needed to face trials, temptations, and specifically seasons of tribulation. If you remember from 1 Peter, when we preached through this a few years ago, Peter is preparing his audience for the reality of intensifying persecution in the Roman Empire. He understands, and the church understands, the vitriol that is rising up against them. And Peter is preparing them in his first letter to stand fast in the faith 
regardless of the persecution that is coming. This is a man who, as we just read, is one that the Lord has revealed to him his death is imminent. Why? Because most likely he is at the place in Rome at this particular point where he knows what's coming. And according to church history, he was crucified by the Roman Emperor Nero. And Peter said, I am not worthy enough to die in the way that my Savior died. And so Nero crucified him upside down. Peter knows that this is coming. And Peter is writing to these Christians and to you and to me that we must cultivate steadfastness, endurance, that we might stand fast regardless of how the world changes and challenges us. To our steadfastness and endurance, we are to add godliness. This is slightly different than the moral excellence that we have already talked about, but still nevertheless very close. We are to be like God. We are to love the things God loves. If virtue talks about our external life of moral excellence, godliness is talking about our affections and our desires, which guide the things that we do and say in this life. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, and as you grow with that person that you love, you begin to know the things they like that they don't like. And oftentimes, we will take on the same wants and desires and likes as those that we are closely associated with. And the more that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God, the more like God we become in our wants and in our desires. We become godly. But lest this list be overwhelming to us as we think about all of these things, Peter uses the same word as a reminder of what he has already said in verse 3, that God's already given you everything you need to, to be godly. Right? That Christ, the power of Christ, has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that you already need, that you need to be godly is at your disposal because of Jesus Christ. Then he moves into two different qualities that move beyond our internal personal life and into our external relational lives. As Peter says that we are to add to our godliness brotherly affection. Peter's moving beyond just our vertical life with Jesus Christ to, to remind us that God has transplanted us out of the world of, desi of desire and sin and darkness and into a forever family. And he has surrounded us because the Christian life is, though it is intensely and deeply personal, it is never expressed in Christianity and in the Bible as being private or isolated. Instead, we are not meant to live this life alone. We need one another. And in needing one another, we are to have an affection for one another. And that was one of the things that made the early Christians stand out in the world. As they were men and women who called one another brothers and sisters, though they had no blood relation whatsoever, they counted the relationship that they shared with Jesus Christ, adopted into his eternal family, as more important than the life that they shared with those who were their blood relatives. Such that a brother or sister in Christ who was not my blood relative was someone that I had a deeper affection for and affinity with than someone who was my blood relative and not a believer in Jesus Christ. It makes me think of that phrase that right, blood is thicker than water. A lot of us misinterpret that. 
What that phrase originally meant was that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. That's where that phrase comes from. Not blood brotherhood, but the blood that we have, well, it is actually more that, that blood brotherhood, cutting the binds and linking together and becoming blood brothers in the blood of the covenant as opposed to the water of the womb, that my, the family I choose is more significant than the family I'm born into. And the forever family that God has given to us is a family that we must love. And if there is not brotherly affection that characterizes our community, that is a problem. And then he ends with love. And here we see those two. Brotherly affection is that word that we know, Philadelphia, if you are familiar with the studies of Scripture. And love here is that deeper agape love, that love that is God's kind of love, the way that he loves that is steadfast and full of mercy and grace and that is unfailing and unconditional. And we are, as we are those who live in that kind of love and receive that kind of love from God, we are to be those that express that same kind of love to others. Peter says if we have these qualities, and if they are increasing, something will happen. And it's important that we understand what Peter doesn't say. Most of us, if we wanted to read this list legalistically, we would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue virtue and godliness and self-control, and when I do all of these, these, these things right, what am I going to get? I'm going to get a reward. But that's not what Peter says. I'm going to get more favor with God. But that's not what Peter says. He says, if you have these things and if they are increasing, you'll be fruitful. You'll not be ineffective or unfruitful. Said positively, if you're pursuing these things, then your life will be of use for the kingdom of God. You will bear fruit in keeping with the person that God has created you to be. And that usefulness in God's kingdom is the reward that we have. And so we can grow in grace and bear fruit in keeping with that nature and character of God. And through us then, we can be useful for His kingdom. But beyond that, we can also withstand the distractions, the false teachings, and the threats that would oppose us. As he says that if we have these things, we will be effective, we will be fruitful, but more important, we'll not be like those who are spiritually blind, who don't know how to live their lives, who don't know how to live in wisdom, and beyond that, they are those who are living as though they are amnesiacs because they have forgotten what it is that God has done for them. They've forgotten that they have been cleansed from their sins because they can't remember it. And so, like an oak growing from an acorn, if we have these Christian qualities and they are growing in our lives, we will be able to withstand the winds of the world. And as we cultivate this Christ-like character, then Peter tells us that we must confirm our calling. There's a lot of misunderstanding when we talk about the word calling in the church. Most often, pastors love to use it as the divine trump card that tells you to shut up and do what they say. God called me here. God called me into ministry. The only time that the word calling appears in the Bible is God's calling out of sin and death and into everlasting life. Christians are who are called. Paul says those who desire the office of pastor desire a good thing. 
and we should then test them to make sure that they have the competency and the character for that life. But the language of calling in Scripture is, is always used in the same way that Peter uses it back in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us Christians, who called us by His own glory and excellence, who called us to Himself. So as Peter is talking about the calling that is here, he is telling Christians that God has called us out of death and into life. God has called us out of enslavement to our sins and into a freedom through an enslavement to Jesus Christ. That God has called us. And therefore, as we practice these qualities, as we nurture and supplement our faith, what we end up doing is confirming the reality of that silent spiritual call. Because after all, what did Jesus say? You will know them by their, you will know them by their fruit. As we bear the fruit, we confirm the calling. We confirm the reality that God has saved us, that God has forgiven us. We'll talk, and he says, not only do we confirm this calling, but we then, by practicing these qualities, gain a confidence that we will never fall. The word that's there, fall, is this, it's, it's this stumbling that leads to an ending of a race. That's why most translations call it a fall like a genuine fall from a cliff. But for those whose faith in Jesus Christ is nurtured and those who are constantly growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we can have a confidence and a hope that regardless of what happens in our lives, and though we may stumble into sin at different points, we have a God who is faithful who will never leave us there. And where and when we fall, it will not be like we're trying to climb a cliff. And with each climb of the cliff and we get a little bit further off the ground, if you fall then, where do you go? To the bottom. To start all over. But that's not the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian isn't climbing a cliff. The life of the Christian is a journey that you take. Where you're called out of the grave and out of life, or out of death and into life, and you begin this journey of growing closer to the Lord and pursuing Him. And you make this, you accomplish, or you see this victory come about in your life, and you see this sin put away in your life, and you learn this discipline and practice in your life. And so it's kind of like that journey in which I set out and I cross this stream and I climb this mountain and I go through this valley and I get through this forest. If I'm that way, if I stumble and I fall, guess what? I don't go back to start. I am where I am with all of those victories behind me and all of the work and the faithfulness and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I don't have to sit there and writhe and, 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 and just sulk in that failure. All i got to do is, by God's grace, get back up and continue in knowing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior who is always faithful and will never abandon me. Everything that, is, that Peter challenges us with in this passage 
is built upon the promise of last week that Jesus as our Lord and Savior is the one who accomplishes and empowers you in it. So he will never expect from you anything that he hasn't already equipped you for. And we just need to lean and trust in Jesus. Because after all, for in this way, by practicing the qualities, verse 11 there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' kingdom. It's Jesus' life and example that is set for us. It's Jesus' righteousness that infuses us. It's Jesus' life that carries us forward. It is a total, complete dependent upon, dependence upon Jesus that he then, by his grace, grows us up as we supplement our faith. There is this beautiful symbiotic relationship in which Jesus gives me everything that I need. I trust in Jesus for everything that I need. I exercise my faith. I find Jesus' faithfulness on the other side to provide me with what I need. And then my faith grows. And it's this constant walking with Jesus Christ. He promises me that I'll have everything that I need. And that's one step in my journey. I exercise my faith, and that's the next step in my journey. I find him faithful. I believe in his faithfulness for the next step of the journey. And I continue on and on and on and on. Growing up in Christ, trusting that in the end, I will not achieve heaven. That's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, if you do these things, you will gain entrance, you will, you will obtain heaven. He says, instead, entrance will be given to you in a parade of joy. That image that's there that it will be richly provided for you, it's the image, it's a word picture that recalls a, an Olympic athlete returning to a city after winning the crown or the gold medal. And they throw him or her a parade and welcome them in. That is the promise of Jesus Christ. The problem is we are people who are prone to forget this, who are prone to forget Christ's faithfulness. Which is why Peter says that if we're practicing these things, we'll not be like those who've forgotten what God has done for us. And to help us not forget in the verses that conclude this, verses 12 through 15, Peter says, therefore, it is my job to remind you. Three times in those verses. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, verse 12. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, verse 13. I will make every effort. Same language. Be diligent to add and supplement to your faith. All of these qualities. Same language. I will make every effort to make sure that when I'm dead and gone, you will be able to recall these things. I will devote my life to reminding you of all of the things that you already know to be true. He says it right there. These things you already have. You are established in the truth, verse 12. My job as a pastor is not to give you something new week over week. If I ever show up and I start pre preaching something that nobody else has figured out in 2,000 plus years of Christianity, you really want to double check me. My job is not to create something new. My job is simply to remind you week after week after week that God loves you, that God is faithful, that God calls you, that God will provide for you, that everything you need, you have in Jesus Christ. So trust in Jesus. 
Trust in Jesus. Remember the gospel. Believe the gospel. Because Jesus says, not when his disciples come to him and say, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? What is Jesus' response in John chapter 6? This is the work of God. You believe in him whom he has sent, period. The life of the Christian is anchored in belief and fighting against every single ounce of doubt that would cause us to question and abandon our belief. But the gospel is slippery, which is why we need to feast on it every day. So as we close, very briefly, out of these verses that Peter has given to us, especially this part of his reminder, we've talked about all of these qualities, but I haven't answered the question, okay, if those are things that I'm supposed to be practicing, if those are the things that I'm supposed to be supplementing my faith with, how do I do that? I wish that there was a simple ABC. You do these things and you will grow. But the truth of the matter is, I think that Peter gives us by his example, some things that we can do. So very briefly, some application as we constantly remember the gospel. If we are going to grow and supplement our faith with these Christian, essential Christian qualities that, by the, that of themselves are guarantees and confidence that we are confirmed in our calling and therefore assured an entrance into the eternal kingdom, if we are going to grow in them and we are going to grow in our faith, the first thing that I think that you and I have to do is make time. This isn't a set it and forget it Christianity. That I believed in Jesus and now he's cooking me. I'm not a car up on the blocks at the local shop where Jesus is the one who's doing all the work on me. There's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. And if we are going to grow, we have to make time to grow. We have to make time to reflect on and focus on our lives. That we might see the ways in which we have we have been an example of self-control and godliness and moral excellence. Peter does that by this very fact. He knows that he's about to die. And so what did he do? He took time out of his final hours that he might write this letter so that every Christian from then to now may be reminded of these things. So Peter takes time to reflect on them himself and present them to you and me. We must be people who run our schedules and not the other way around. And we must dedicate time. We must be intentional with our resources. We must dedicate time to be with other Christians if we are going to be able to express brotherly love. We must dedicate time in God's Word and in prayer if we are going to grow in knowledge of Him and His spiritual qualities and the truths and the doctrines of Christianity. We must dedicate time. We also must ask for help. Peter says there in verse 13 that he is going to do everything he can to stir us up by way of reminder. You need someone in your life who's encouraging you. You need someone in your life who's cheering you on. You need someone in your life who's holding you accountable. We're not meant to live this life alone, and so we need people to instruct us, to disciple us, to shape us. We need to ask for help. If you don't know how to grow up in grace and knowledge, then ask for help. Find a brother and sister in Christ who is you can go to and humbly say, I need help. I've, never, I've been to church my whole life and I've just been thrown into the system. And guess what? I've been put in the oven and they set me and they forget me and I've not grown. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to read the Bible for myself. I don't know how to tell other people about Jesus. 
then you need help. Ask for help. Verse 10, Peter tells us to practice these things. So if we're going to grow up in grace and knowledge, we must practice self-control. We must practice steadfastness. We must practice what it is that the God calls us. We must practice moral excellence. We must practice confession and repentance and asking forgiveness. We must practice the proclamation of God's wonder and glory and nature and character by singing songs and praise. Many of us are waiting for the expertise to just be infused into us. If I sit in the pew long enough, I'll learn enough, and, and then, if I've been around the church long enough, then, then I'll be equipped to step up and teach a Sunday school class. I've got to know enough before I can teach. I've got to know enough before I can serve. I've got to have experience enough before I can do anything. Now, there are certain things that, yeah, you need to know, but guess what? We are glad to equip you with it. And so the greatest way that we can grow is to try. Find a place in the family to serve. To put into practice the gifts that God has given to you because those spiritual gifts that He has promised in administration and in healing and teaching and prophesying and encouraging and all of those different things, if all they're doing is sitting on the shelf of your heart, they're just getting dusty and they're doing the body no good. So try Step up and step in. Practice. And then be persistent. Peter says three times, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I want you to be able to recall these things. Never, ever, ever give up. If you fall down, get up in the grace of God. If you struggle, keep going in the grace of God. Knowing that His love will never fail you. Be reminded again and again and again and again, believing that you are established in the person and in the work of Jesus alone. And trust in him. And grow. As you're persistent, as you practice, asking for help, dedicating time and energy and effort, God is faithful to bring the growth. So trust in him.